Welcome to the Rational National Podcast for Wednesday, April 24th, 2019. I'm your host, David Dole, and coming up on today's show are a lot of segments. <laughs> so I didn't do a uh, podcast on Tuesday, and I didn't realize how many videos I racked up since uh, since Monday morning. So there's a video coming up on uh, Pete Buttigieg and uh, how The Hill kind of construed a, uh, a poll result to favor Pete Buttigieg. Uh, another breakdown of the uh, Zizek Peterson debate, uh, followed by, I'm looking through my clips here. This one, oh, um, followed by Bernie's uh, new ad that uh, faces him up against Donald Trump, followed by the case for impeachment from uh, Elizabeth Warren and Rashida Tlaib, and then last video uh, slash piece of audio, Meghan McCain being ignorant of uh, voting rights. So these, uh, I, I think you'll enjoy these. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what else to say. I think I realized it's kind of hard to, uh, as one person, to put out a podcast every day. And uh, I may just do this three times a week now, or there may be some days where you just hear the uh, the YouTube segments and there is no intro. Because uh, I do still want to deliver all these segments for for. Uh, podcast uh listeners so that's kind of the case today i don't have much to say i've been working my butt off uh, i have a really good interview coming up tomorrow actually I'm, I'm looking forward to uh sharing that one with all of you but uh all right coming up these five youtube segments that you may have missed on the page okay so i saw this uh story in the hill which is a well-known political outlet and i want to share this because to me, this really showcases in a microcosm how the media manufactures certain narratives. And in this case, how the media has manufactured support for Pete Buttigieg. So let me break this down. And really, it's it's fairly simple, as you're going to see. So first up, this tweet. So the Hill tweets out, Buttigieg skyrockets to top of new poll, is neck and neck with Biden. Okay, now before I go any further, what does this tweet tell us? It, so, uh, reading this tweet, Buttigieg uh, skyrockets to top of new poll, so it makes us think, okay, he's at the top of this poll, and he's neck and neck with Biden. So, visually, I mean, this gives you the idea that Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden are one and two in, in this new poll, in this race. But, you click the link, and look, <laughs> this is where the problem begins, because most people... Do not click the link in the tweet. They just read the headline and think, oh my God, Pete Buttigieg, he's just skyrocketing to the top here. Pete Buttigieg has all this support. He's this growing support. And, and really, he's he's already there. I mean, he's, he's up he's up there with Biden. He's going to do fantastic. I think Pete Buttigieg is a guy that I could support potentially because he has this uh, this amazing support. So that's the impression that people get from a tweet like this. Then you click on the link. Sanders leads. Buttigieg catches Biden in New Hampshire poll. Okay, now this is the second step. So the first step is, well, clearly, I mean, now that you've read the tweet and the headline, the headline or the, the tweet did not give you all the information that it really should have given you. Clearly, Sanders, who wasn't mentioned at all in the initial tweet, is leading this poll. But okay, well, Buttigieg it has caught Biden in this New Hampshire poll, so... At least Buttigieg and Biden, they're, they're right behind. Sanders sure may be leading. Again, most people don't get past the headline here. But then you read a little further. <laughs> so let me share this. The latest Granite State poll from University of New Hampshire finds Sanders at 30%, followed by Biden at 18%, and Buttigieg at 15%. No other candidate has more than 5% support. 77% of Democrats said they're still trying to decide who to support. There is surging interest in Buttigieg among Democratic voters. In the previous survey from late February, Sanders was at 26%, followed by Biden at 22%. Buttigieg was only at 1% in that survey. Okay, so when you actually read the article and see what the the data is here that they're basing this whole story off of, Sanders has, his support has increased. So he was at 26%. He's now at 30%. Meanwhile, Biden has gone down. And yes, Buttigieg has surged, in part because of stories like this that have focused on Pete Buttigieg. So the title of this story could really be 
Bernie's support continues to grow despite Buttigieg surging. Or Bernie leads by 15% over Buttigieg. I mean, this is, Bernie has doubled the support in this poll that Buttigieg does. Yet the, the, the initial tweet makes it out like Buttigieg is at the top of this list with Biden. And no Sanders at all is mentioned until you get to the actual headline. And then you get further and realize that actually Bernie is pretty far ahead of both Biden and Buttigieg. Yet Buttigieg and Biden are the focus of the headline in the tweet and as well, uh, mainly the focus in, in the headline of the article as well. So this is how support is manufactured. This is just one, again, again, this is just a, a microcosm. This is one small example of how the media operates as a whole and how they have been able to generate this kind of popularity or this kind of support for Buttigieg because they have focused on him. This is free media for Buttigieg. There is really no reason for Buttigieg to even be mentioned in any of the headlines here. But he's mentioned again and again and again in stories like this and on television as a way to prop up his name so that more people are familiar with Pete Buttigieg. So he increases his name recognition, which is a huge factor when it comes to uh, polling and eventually to voting. So for people that don't often follow politics too closely, that's what moves them. The names they hear most. Oh, Pete Buttigieg. Yeah, I heard about that guy on CNN. They were talking about him. Oh, yeah, I, I saw a few articles about Pete Buttigieg. Oh, I just saw this article or this tweet from The Hill saying that Pete Buttigieg has surged and now he's neck and neck with Biden. Yeah, I know Buttigieg. That's how they manufacture support for these candidates. And if you want to go even deeper and understand really why Pete Buttigieg has been talked about so much recently in the mainstream press, check out this paragraph from this recent New York Times piece that kind of gives you a window into what's going on. The matter of what to do about Bernie and the larger imperative of party unity has, for example, hovered over a series of previously undisclosed Democratic dinners in New York and Washington, organized by the longtime party financier Bernard Schwartz. The gatherings have included scores from the moderate and center-left wing of the party, including Speaker Nancy Pelosi of California, Senator Chuck Schumer of New York, the Minority Leader, former Governor Terry McAuliffe of Virginia, Mayor Pete Buttigieg of South Bend, Indiana, himself a presidential candidate, and the president of the Center for American Progress, Neera Tandon. So, these big dinners taking place in New York and Washington, funded by a longtime party financier, they're having these meetings about how to stop Bernie Sanders. Because Bernie is the one that challenges the actual system. He's the one that wants to raise their taxes. And he's the one that will not be employing the Democratic consultants that have propped up the kinds of candidates like a Biden or a Pete Buttigieg. That's what's going on here. They're afraid of Bernie Sanders, and Pete Buttigieg has been integral to the conversation around how to stop Bernie Sanders, which is why you see the focus from the media giving free media, all this free media, to Pete Buttigieg as a 2020 candidate, because they right now see him as the best potential to uh, take support away from Bernie Sanders. This is what they do. So <laughs> the great thing about the internet and you know YouTube is that we can actually expose this now. For years and years and years, the CNNs, the MSNBCs, the Fox Newses, the New York Times, the Washington Post, these mainstream outlets, these mass media outlets, they controlled the entire narrative. They pushed who they wanted to push, who they supported for whatever reason, whether it's because of lower taxes or whatever else. They were able to push the narrative that they wanted to push, and it worked. The difference now is that people can go online and actually look into what is going on and understand what's happening behind the scenes and how they're pulling the strings to push certain candidates and to try and keep other ones down. And it exposes just how, really how afraid they are of Bernie Sanders, because this is somebody who is not playing their game. He, th this is not the system that he wants to operate in. He does want to make massive changes to the system that will benefit the vast majority of Americans, but will not benefit people like Neera Tandon or other um, or, or big Democratic donors. So, again, these stories are important because it, it showcases who's on your side and who isn't. And in the case of Pete Buttigieg, 
he appears to be a completely manufactured candidate in an attempt to take down Bernie Sanders. Where are the Marxists here? I don't know any. I don't. Who, who is the Marxist here? All right. So last week I attended a debate between Jordan Peterson and Slavoj Žižek titled Happiness, Capitalism versus Marxism. I've already done one video on it focused on Jordan Peterson's idea of self-improvement and Zizek's critique of that. Now, in this video, I want to go uh, a little deeper on a, a few different issues. So first, let me um, show you this clip of Zizek discussing PC culture, because I think this is actually this showcases Zizek's ability to speak, potentially speak to Peterson's audience. Yes, we should carry our burden, accept the suffering that goes with it. But a danger lurks here, that of a subtle reversal. Don't fall in love, that's my position, with your suffering. Never presume that your suffering is in itself a proof of your authenticity. Please, if you are a leftist, don't feel obliged to be politically correct. Think, think, don't be afraid, don't be afraid to think. And uh, especially, would you agree, one great version of not thinking is how immediately, if they don't agree with you, you are labeled a fascist. But that's the laziness. People find something they don't agree with instead of thinking, they think about something we all agree was a bad thing, Up, you are a fascist, and so on. You know, it's not as simple as that. Even Trump, of whom I'm deeply critical, no, I'm sorry to tell you, yes, he is a catastrophe in the long term and so on, but he is not a fascist. You make it all too easy to play these games. I just want not a positive result, but to shatter you a little bit. All right, so I wanted to show you that clip because I think it gives you an idea of how Zizek is able to reach Peterson's followers by having a very similar critique of PC culture that Jordan Peterson has. So I think it's good that, that Zizek... Uh, led with that and also ended with that and um it does miss one thing though and this is something that because look i don't see this as i don't see it as a huge issue because i don't really see it like for example the sasha baron cohen character in his uh, showtime show where he's this self-hating white male who wears his professor who wears an npr shirt and in one of the clips in uh, from that show he is talking to a, a a black man and the black man calls himself black and then Sasha Baron Cohen's character says, no, don't say that. That's very offensive to call yourself black. Like that, <laughs> that kind of thing doesn't really exist in real life. That's mostly like a, an internet phenomenon if people like that exist at all. But the, the kind of thing where Zizek brings up how um, uh, don't do the thing where if people disagree with you, you call them a fascist. Yeah, that, that does exist for sure on the left. But a similar thing also exists on the right. Jordan Peterson. I mean, when people disagree with him, oh, they're they're postmodern neo-Marxists, or they just see a they have a critique of what you're saying, and they're not postmodern neo-Marxists, as you're going to see later on in the clip. Zizek asks Peterson, "Where are these Marxists? I don't see them." So, anyways, I want to I'll I'll get to that, but the point being here, Zizek has the ability to reach Peterson's supporters with a similar critique of culture that Peterson has, and. Uh, let me get to the next clip here where Peterson discusses his view of hierarchies and how he believes they're they're natural and also how, in his own words here, hierarchies are not predicated on power. Watch. The idea that one of the driving forces between history is hierarchical struggle is absolutely true. But the idea that that's actually history is not true because it's deeper than history. It's biology itself because organisms of all sorts organize themselves into hierarchies and one of the problems with hierarchies is that they tend to arrange themselves into a winner-take-all situation and so and that, that is implicit in some sense in Marx, Marx's thinking because of course Marx believed that in a capitalist society capital would accumulate in the hands of fewer and fewer people and that actually is in keeping with the nature of hierarchical organizations now the problem with that isn't so much the fact of so there's the there's accuracy in the accusation that that is a f eternal form of 
motivation for struggle, but it's an underestimation of the seriousness of the problem because it attributes it to the structure of human societies rather than the deeper reality of the existence of hierarchical structures per se, which as they also characterize the animal kingdom to a large degree are clearly not only human constructions. It is the case that hierarchies dispossess people, and that's a big problem. That's the fundamental problem of inequality. But it's also the case that hierarchies happen to be a very efficient way of distributing resources. And it's finally the case that human hierarchies are not fundamentally predicated on power. And I would say the biological, anthropological data on that are crystal clear. You don't rise to a position of authority that's reliable in a human society primarily by exploiting other people. It's a very unstable means of obtaining power. So, so that's a problem. Well, the people that laugh might do it that way. All right. Now, this was the moment where I think Jordan Peterson is clearly wrong. And I'm going to have another video to show you that actually somebody who probably should have debated Peterson on capitalism. Uh, Richard Wolff, I'll have a, a clip of him coming up, but let me first get to the, the hierarchy thing. So, okay, he says, you know, hierarchies are natural, they're, they're in nature. Okay, fine, but they evolve. I mean, our system evolves. There were hunter-gatherers, then there, were, there was feudalism, then there's capitalism. These systems all change and evolve, and they change based on the needs of the society and what works, what doesn't. Everything evolves. So this idea that they are permanent or they shouldn't be critiqued because, well, that's hierarchy is just the way it is. Capitalism is the way it is because of hierarchies. No. Critique the system. Understand what is broken in the system. Understand or, or what is rigged in the system and how it can be improved. So... I don't really have an issue with Peterson saying that, uh, oh, hierarchies are natural. Okay, what, whatever. I have an issue with him just using that as a reason to not critique the system at all. It's sort of weird. So it's like, so th there's actually this great, um, this great article in Current Affairs by Benjamin uh, Studebaker, and he uh, writes this. Imagine if, instead of winding down feudalism and abolishing it in, the, in 1660, the British made the kinds of arguments Peterson made in this debate. They might have pointed out that feudalism made Britain richer than it had ever been before, that urban living can be a grim and can be grim and brutal, that going to work in factories would rip families and communities apart. And besides, don't we care about other things aside from economics? What about God and the church? Didn't St. Augustine tell us to reject the city of man? Peterson celebrates a system his own arguments would have defeated. As we stare down the barrel of climate change, anxious and afraid, alone and isolated, perhaps some of us wish it had been so. So this is like, if you put Jordan Peterson back in time, he would be defending the system that we have evolved out of. Or even if you put him back, I made this point in the other video, if you put Peterson in the early 1900s, he would make the point of, oh, women shouldn't have the right to vote because we have this hierarchy. It's, it's worked for us so far. Why change it? I mean, it's just a really weird perspective to have. It's okay to, to see hierarchies in nature. But it doesn't make any sense to use that as the the basis to not critique how the system currently operates. Now, this is what I really want to get to, though. So, Peterson says, human hierarchies are not predicated on power. And he also says, quote, you don't rise to a position of authority that's reliable in a human society primarily by exploiting other people. And that was followed by laughter in the audience. So, let me show you who... If we're going to have a debate about Marxism and, and capitalism, who Jordan Peterson probably should have debated on this issue, and that's Marxian economist Richard Wolff. So here's Richard Wolff discussing this issue of how the system actually functions and, yes, how it exploits people. And I wanted you to also just counter another argument that I hear constantly. I earned it. You know, we earned this money. The best way to describe this is to do, to go back to Karl Marx and his analysis of capitalism so that we all understand what earning is about. Let's imagine you are a person looking for a job and I'm the employer that you're looking to get hired by. So we, uh, you come in and you sit down, you fill out your application form and I look at you and I describe to you the kind of work we'd like to have you do. You'll come on nine to five, Monday to Friday, and you'll sit over there and you'll do this kind of work, et cetera, et cetera. 
and we get through all that, and you're, you're okay with that. And then we get to that big question, how much are you going to get paid? And let's say we, we, we dicker back and forth, and we agree on $20 an hour. So I'm going to pay you $20 an hour. At this point, Marx enters with a smile on his face and says, I'm now going to show you, the reader of his books, that when that deal is done, the $20 an hour, something is going on that you actually know, but you don't want to face, but I'm going to show it to you. When the employer, when I hire you for 20 bucks an hour, I know that for every hour that you give me your work, your brains, your muscles to work, I'm going to have more stuff to sell at the end of the day because you're added to my workforce. You're going to help me produce more goods or more services or better quality goods and services than I would have if I didn't employ you. So I'm going to say to myself, hmm, it costs me to get Abby $20 an hour. What do I get out of it? I want, I'm going to have the output that Abby adds by her labor. Now that has got to be more than 20 bucks. So the only way I'm going to hire you for $20 an hour is if you produce more in the hour than I give you. So when you feel in a vague way at the end of the day, as you walk home, that you're being ripped off, you're absolutely right. Or in Marx's language, exploited. So what does the capitalist say? I earned it. No, you didn't. He just ripped people off. The way most corporations work is four times a year, they take the profits they've made in the preceding three months, and they distribute a portion of them to their shareholders. These distributions are called dividends. So if you own a lot of shares, say because you inherited them from your grandma, or you stole money and bought them on the stock market, there are lots of ways of getting them. But if you have them, Four times a year, you go to your mailbox in the morning and you get an envelope and you tear it open and inside is a check for your share of the profits that have been distributed to shareholders. For rich people, this is millions of dollars. They have all that money. What did they do exactly to earn that money? Nothing. Those people are going to tell me they earned? Earned what? Did they ever set foot in the factory? No. Do they have any idea what this company does? No, they don't care. They are simply sitting there collecting. Well, let's now do a little logic. If there are people like shareholders who get a lot of goods and services they didn't help produce, then there must be elsewhere in that system people who produce what they do not get. So that means, if we allow that, that we are saying, some people, your job is to produce a lot more than you get so that these people can get a lot more than they produce. For Marx, he stands up and says, I rest my case. This system sucks. Yeah, so I think that's pretty clear. The only reason why we haven't really questioned it is because we haven't really had people like Richard Wolff mainstreamed enough to be able to question it on a level where most people are seeing the analysis, are seeing the critique. So I think it's clear that capitalism is based on exploitation. Now, you may say, okay, yes, it is, but that's the way things are. It's worked out for us, whatever. Okay, fine. Have that. <laughs> you can make that argument if you want. But to deny the fact that it is clearly based on the exploitation of workers, I think, is to just be ignorant of how the system operates. Now, let me get to the next clip here where um, Zizek discusses or <laughs> asks the question, uh, and Peterson answers, where are these Marxists that you're talking about? You designate your, under quotation marks, I'm not characterizing here, enemy, or what you are fighting against, as sometimes you call it uh, postmodern neo-Marxism. I know what you mean, all this, from political correctness yes. to these excesses of whatever uh, uh, spirit of envy and so on and so on. Do you think they are really, where did you find this data? I don't know them. I would ask you here, give me some names or whatever. Where are the Marxists here? I don't know any. I don't, who, who is a Marxist here? They are already, the one who is not a Marxist, but at least approaches economic topic, Bernie Sanders, he is already under attack as white male and all that stuff and so on. Who are, give me some names and so on, and who are these 
postmodern egalitarian neo-Marxist, and where do you see any kind even of, of Marxism? I see in it mostly an, an impotent, an utterly impotent moralization. Please, I'm uh, so sorry that I was too No, no, that's, that's no problem. Please. Well, I mean, um, organization like Jonathan Haidt's, um, uh, what's it called? Heterodox Academy and other organizations like that have documented an absolute dearth of conservative voices in the social sciences and the humanities, and about 25%, according to the, uh, what I think are reliable surveys, approximately 25% of social scientists in the U.S. identify themselves as Marxists. And so there's that. But where are the well, results? Okay, but, but let, Can well, you name me one? The, I know a couple of Marxists. For example, uh, uh, who does very solid economic work. Yeah, I don't totally... Uh, David Harvey, one. But he writes very serious books of economic analysis and so on and so on. Then there is the old guy who is far from simplification, Frederick Jameson and so on. But they are totally marginalized today. In this politically correct mainstream, you know, I, I don't see... Well, yeah, your question seemed to me to focus more on the, per the peculiar relationship that I've noticed and that people have disputed between postmodernism and, and neo-Marxism. And I see the connection between the postmodernist types and the Marxists as a sleight of hand that replaced the notion of the oppression of the proletariat by the bourgeoisie as the oppression by one identity group by another. All right. I think Peterson completely exposed himself here. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's conflating people that are, in his mind, obsessed with identity politics. He's conflating those people with Marxists. How does that make any sense? It doesn't. That's why Zizek asks him, where are these Marxists? Can you name me one? Name me one. And he couldn't name one. Because they are not mainstreamed. They do not exist. Go on CNN. Go on MSNBC. Read, read the major papers, the, 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 the big websites. Is there a Marxist on any of these panels, on these networks, or writing any of these articles in these big papers? No. Because they are completely, as Zizek says, they are completely marginalized. But Peterson is using the term Marxism as a way to describe people that are uh, I guess, obsessed in his mind with identity politics, which, by the way, is also an issue on the right when you have the Republican Party and their supporters 95% white. How is that not identity politics? But because Peterson is white, he is not able to see outside of himself and understand that, oh, yeah, this is also a problem on the right where the right is completely obsessed with white identity politics. So this is... And by the way, it all like I don't want to get into the whole discussion, but there is a way to discuss identity politics without it being this issue where people freak out about it. The way identity politics should be viewed is that we can speak to issues that affect different groups and address all of those issues within one, for example, one uh, campaign for president. So the issue of whether it's... Uh, housing discrimination or police brutality or food deserts, issues that affect certain people or issues around trans rights. There are ways to discuss identity politics and understand that it is really, it, it, it's really just a way to discuss various issues facing different kinds of people and be able to address those issues. That's all it really is. But the way that it can be conflated or, or the way that it can be... um. I guess discussed. Yeah, I guess it can go too far if you're someone like I mentioned the uh, the Sasha Baron Cohen character, where he's a self-hating white man. I mean, yeah, it can go too far in that sense. But in this case, it's clear that Jordan Peterson has essentially created a term to describe people that are not actually Marxists. Well, let's see how tough you are. Tell General Motors today. No more federal contracts until they deal with Rothstein. Let's see how tough you are. So Bernie Sanders has a new ad out that focuses on Ohio and Trump's failure in Ohio and how Sanders would do things differently. 
Now, even though it's focused on uh, a certain town in Ohio, I do think it has a larger message that will resonate with people in states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, all of which I'll have some very enlightening polling data to show you after I show you this ad. At one time, this is what built the middle class during the Industrial Revolution. This area is in trouble, and it's up to us, the people, to fight back. I'm Chucky Dennison. I'm from Lake Milton, Ohio. This is my third plant I've seen close, and I do not plan to transfer again. I plan to stay here and fight back. By organizing and transforming the political system from the ground up and reclaim the White House. Trump lied to Ohio. He hasn't done one thing to lift a finger. He came to this area and told people, do not sell your homes, I'm bringing the jobs back. And weeks after that is when they announced the plant closing. Let me tell you folks in Ohio and in this area, don't sell your house. A large American factory stopped production today after more than half a century. 1,600 workers at the General Motors plant in Lordstown, Ohio, are affected by this. The plant is in Trumbull County, a county that voted for President Obama and then for President Trump. It's not only devastating to the employees who work for that plant, but the families. It affects the whole entire area. Tax revenue, infrastructure, down to the schools. Even the little children in school, their best friends disappear because they're uprooted and have to move. The tire factories are gone, the steel mills are gone. This was all that this area had left. If you drive down our roads now, everyone's got potholes. He came here and lied to these people. I didn't buy it, but many people did because they were hanging on to hope. They were hoping that he would do something, but he did the opposite. Trump gave General Motors $700 million in federal contracts. I mean, this is happening all over this nation with all kinds of corporations. Not only are you hurting workers, communities, but the children and future generations. And it needs to stop now. Today I say to Donald Trump, you know, you are a really tough guy and you are prepared to shut down the federal government and deny hundreds of thousands of workers a paycheck. Well, let's see how tough you are. Tell General Motors today, no more federal contracts until they deal with Rockstar. Let's see how tough you are. Today, our message to General Motors and the other corporations is that you cannot continue to treat your employees with disdain and contempt. And if you are not a good and responsible corporate citizen, do not think that you will get federal contracts. Bernie, we need you. We do. We need you. And we have your back. And I know you got ours. If we can get you elected, man, we're going to have the resources to transform America. All right, so I thought this was an incredibly powerful ad. And it has a message here that I think resonates with people that are also outside of Ohio, understanding Trump's lies about how he was going to help people that were working in manufacturing or help these various industries that have had their jobs cut because of these massively profitable companies cutting all these jobs like GM. So let me give you a little more information on GM that wasn't even included in this video because it, it gives you a real perspective on how these corporations treat their employees. So GM closed, I think, four plants in the U.S. They closed one in Canada. And this was during a time where the quarter before, in, in the third quarter, GM posted a $2.5 billion profit. So this is a company that was making money, that is making money, is generating a ton of profit. And they still laid off almost 15,000 people in all those plant closures. On top of that, GM also wasted $14 billion on share buybacks since 2014 to artificially inflate their earnings. Not to mention, GM CEO Mary Barra collected nearly $22 million in total compensation for 2017, which is 295 times more than the average GM worker makes. And... You put that all together and also include the fact that GM received uh, over $3 billion in taxpayer-funded bailout money in 2008. And you, you can clearly see how the entire system is rigged. You have this 
system where both the Democrats and the Republicans, both conservatives and liberals, they prop up these massive corporations, give them corporate welfare. They're able to make all this money for themselves. All the money goes to the top of these companies, yet they are able to lay off a ton of employees while they are making that money. While they are getting taxpayer-funded bailout money, they can still lay all these people off and continue to make the exorbitant amounts of, of wealth that they make for the people that are in the executive branches of these companies, for their shareholders as well. This is, I mean, this is robbing people blind. This is telling them that, oh, yeah, we're here for you. Oh, these companies, we're going to save them with this tax, with, with this uh, this bailout money. Don't worry, GM's going to be back and strong, going to be employing people all over the country only to lay off 15,000 people 10 years later. This is what these companies do. They don't give a shit about anybody except for whoever is running these corporations. All they care to do is make money for themselves. You see it again and again and again. And Bernie actually has a message that is challenging that existing system, that rigged system. Now, you go on to... So I want to show you some internal uh, polling data from Bernie's campaign this is from uh, Tulchin Research, and they did polling of Bernie against Trump in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Guess how he did? So let's take a look. In Michigan, Bernie is plus 11. In Wisconsin, plus 10. In Pennsylvania, he's plus 8. So in all of these important swing states that went to Trump, Bernie is leading by in in two cases, over 10 points, uh, or 10 points and 11 points, and in one case, eight points. But you go, so first of all, on the face of it, this is impressive. I would like to see how the other candidates stack up. So it's one thing to just have, you know, uh, putting yourself against Trump in those states. It's another thing to, to include all the different candidates and understand, okay, where does everybody else uh, sit here? But um, other polling, I mean, backs up this internal polling as well, that yes, yeah, Sanders is clearly defeating Trump in these states. But I also want to show you this polling. So this is this also gives you an idea of how people uh, perceive Bernie Sanders compared to Donald Trump. So they asked the question, which candidate for president, Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump, does each of the following phrases best describe in your opinion? So honest and trustworthy. Bernie is plus 23, plus 23, and plus 18. Brings people together. He's plus 29, plus 26, plus 20. Understands the struggles of ordinary Americans plus 32, plus 28, plus 17. I mean, you look at all these numbers. Bernie has leads that are all over 10 points on all of these issues, on all of these questions. Is on the side of the middle class, plus 18, plus 22, plus 17. Independent of special interests, Bernie's plus 13, plus 11, plus 13. Stands up to the wealthy and powerful, plus 14, plus 15, plus 14. Will make healthcare more affordable, plus 19, plus 24, plus 16 and will improve education and make college more affordable, plus 30, plus 35, and plus 28. So there is a clear divide here, a clear difference of people understanding what the the thing that Trump pretended to be about. You see these same voters, at least the majority of them, understanding that now, no, Trump wasn't for the things that he pretended he was 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 about. He He's not actually for the working class Americans because he hasn't done anything for working class Americans. And on top of that, you have a candidate in Sanders that actually, he, he elicits this response because this is who he is. So if you put someone up there like Kamala Harris, are people really going to think that Kamala Harris stands up to the wealthy and powerful? I mean, it would be a much harder case to make. Now, uh, compared to Trump, yes, I think she is clearly in a better in a better position uh, on any issue over Trump. But against Sanders, I would not want to take that risk with any of these candidates. Because you have Bernie Sanders clearly defining himself as the candidate that doesn't take money from... well. Most candidates aren't taking money from, from corporate PACs, but even you get farther down the list, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Kirsten Gillibrand, all these candidates, with the exception of Elizabeth Warren, are holding private fundraisers in the primary. So Elizabeth Warren said she, she would be open to taking money from anywhere if she uh, won the primary and was the general election candidate. 
But when it comes to the primary, all these other candidates are taking private donor money. So they're having they're having these face-to-face meetings with people from, you know, big pharma companies, uh, potentially fossil fuel companies, especially in the case of Beto O'Rourke. Uh, other industries, Wall Street, these industries that will clearly have an impact on their ability to push certain policy positions if they happen to be president, which was the issue with Obama. Obama was heavily funded by Wall Street. And he wasn't too hard on Wall Street. So this is it. Not, not to mention wasn't too hard. His cabinet was full of Wall Street people. So this is this is the system that Bernie is trying to challenge, that he is attempting to break up. And when you see somebody that has a 40-year record on these issues, is the only candidate not having any private fundraisers, is simply funded by individual donations, right now averaging 20 bucks a piece. It's clear who Bernie Sanders stands for. And I think it's also very clear that he would be the best candidate to go up against Donald Trump in the general election for, I mean, one of many reasons, Trump would not be able to say that Bernie is a sellout to corporations like he did to Hillary, like he did to other Republican candidates, (laughs) because Trump created this idea that, oh, because I'm rich, I'm self-funded, uh, I'm not corrupted at all. No, I'm I'm self-funding my campaign. I'm for the people. I'm just a business guy. Total fraud. But in Bernie Sanders, you actually have that message for real. He could not be challenged on that. The only people that will be challenging him in a general election matchup will be the establishment, will be the massive media companies, will be Massive corporations that don't want to pay higher taxes or don't want to pay their employees proper wages. That's who is scared of Bernie Sanders. The average American at this point, I think, understands that Bernie actually stands up for the people, unlike Donald Trump, who pretended to be that person. I don't care if you're a Republican or Democrat, you should be worried about this because this sets a precedent that precedent that it's okay that you have these conflicts. Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and Senator Elizabeth Warren have made two very different cases for why the Democrats should push for the impeachment of Donald Trump. So before I even get to this, I do want to just address an argument that I know will be in the comments immediately when this video is posted about, oh, don't push for impeachment. It'll it's going to excite Trump's base and it'll just distract things and we won't be able to focus on the actual issues for 2020 because the media will be too distracted. I get some of that, especially in terms of the media. But I mean, on one hand, that is the media's responsibility to not fall into that. But on the idea of exciting Trump's base, that you shouldn't go after Trump because it excites his base. This is the same kind of flawed reasoning that was used for years about why Democrats should be weak against Republicans. And it never panned out. I mean, Democrats were shown to capitulate again and again and again on policy issues, never really fight back against Republicans. And all that happened was that Democrats lost over a thousand seats over the course of eight years under Obama's presidency. Clearly, sitting back and being weak did not help the Democratic Party. So I don't know why people think it would be beneficial in this case if it didn't work before. But with that said, I want to show you these two arguments. So first, uh, this is going to be Rashida Tlaib, who was on uh, MSNBC discussing her resolution to move for uh, impeachment of Donald Trump. You know, the resolution that I introduced, it holds the president accountable to anti-corrupt laws that are in the United States Constitution, because even prior to Mueller's report, before it came out, I think one of the things that I kept hammering down on is the fact that we have a president, first time ever in history, that hasn't divested in his Uh, domestic and foreign businesses. Why that's important is to understand that when he makes decisions, when the president, the person that's in the Oval Office makes decisions on behalf of the American people, it can't be in direct conflict with his businesses. And that's why you have the emoluments clause in the United States Constitution. So in the same breath that we have companies like T-Mobile, who wants to merge with Sprint, is spending, you know, close to $200,000 at the D.C. Trump Hotel uh, and, and, and lobbying the federal government at the same time, you know, they're are worries that that is corruption and that's some sort of way to what I call the upgraded version of pay to play uh, into the corridor of power. I don't care if you're a Republican or Democrat, you should be worried about this because this sets a precedent that precedent that it's okay that you have these conflicts, that there is this corruption that's happening. 
and that businesses, and including foreign governments, can just go stay at the Trump Hotel and lobby our government to support certain positions. All right, so I found this uh, argument to be compelling because this doesn't focus on the Mueller report. So unlike Warren's argument that you're going to see coming up, she focuses on the, the Mueller report and obstruction of justice. Rashida Tlaib here is focusing on the violation of the Emoluments Clause. So let me give you a little uh, more information on that. So this is from Vox.com. What the Emoluments Clause <clears throat> says, Article 1, Section 9, Clause 8 of the U.S. Constitution says, No title of nobility shall be granted by the United States, and no person holding any office of profit or trust under them shall, without the consent of Congress, accept of any present emolument, office, or title of any kind, whatever from any king, prince, or foreign state. This is a very outdated pro style, but the gist of it is that the authors of the Constitution were concerned that officials of the U.S. government might be subverted by foreign powers who could offer them gifts, offices, titles, or emoluments, an old-timey word for compensation for labor or services. Now, this is going on currently with Donald Trump. So, this reporting, uh, this piece uh, that I'm about to read here from Vox actually came before Trump vetoed the bill that would have ended the U.S. support of the Saudi-led war in Yemen. So let me first read this. Right now, we know from a random leak that the manager of a Trump hotel in New York attributed a business turnaround to the Saudi government's largesse, which, if true, would tell us something damning and important about U.S.-Saudi relations in the Trump era. But to ascertain how true it is, we would need more systematic information. So the Saudi government bought up a bunch of hotels, uh, hotel rooms at, a, at Trump Hotel in New York. And what happened? A few months later, Trump vetoes bill to end U.S. support for war in Yemen. Politicians decry Trump's decision to continue U.S. involvement in it as a, cynically, as a cynical move and missed opportunity for humanitarian help. So... This bill, put together, by the way, by Bernie Sanders and I think uh, it was uh, Mike Lee, they passed this in the House and the Senate. Despite the fact that Republicans have a majority in the Senate, they passed this bill to end U.S. support of the Saudi-led war in Yemen. And Trump vetoed it. Now, is the reason he vetoed it potentially because of the Saudi government essentially stuffing Trump's pockets with money. I mean, this is the kind of thing that it's happening in front of our faces and on important issues like the war in Yemen. So is there going to be just no recourse for this whatsoever? You're just going to allow the Saudi government to to stuff Trump's pockets with, with, with cash, buy up a bunch of Trump hotels, and then, oh, it just so happens that Trump vetoed a bill one of the, the, the few uh, large bills here about uh, and about war that would have ended the U.S. support of the Saudi-led war in Yemen. I mean, I think this is actually the best case. Uh, for, for, I mean, forget the Mueller report. This, I think, is the best case to move for impeachment of Trump. Now, I do want to show you, though, Warren's case for impeachment as well. And I don't think she makes a terrible case. I just think uh, Rashida Tlaib's case is, uh, is better. But... Here's Warren's case that she made uh, last night in a CNN town hall. There is no political inconvenience exception to the United States Constitution. Um, if any other human being in this country had done what's documented in the Mueller report, they would be arrested and put in jail. Obstruction of justice is a serious crime in this country. But Mueller believed, because of the directions from Donald Trump's Justice Department, that he could not bring a criminal indictment against a sitting president. So I think he's wrong on that, but that's what he believed. So he serves the whole thing up to the United States Congress and says, in effect, if there's going to be any accountability, that accountability has to come from the Congress. And the tool that we are given for that accountability is the impeachment process. This is not about politics. This is about principle. This is about what kind of a democracy we have. In a dictatorship, everything in government revolves around protecting the one person at the center. 
but not in our democracy and not under our constitution. We have checks and balances, and we have to proceed here in a way understanding our place in history that not only protects democracy now, but protects democracy when the next president comes in and the next president and the president after that. But, but you That's just, our responsibility. So I think Elizabeth Warren here makes a great case as well. And actually, the the idea of setting precedent is true in both the case uh, that Rashida Tlaib is putting up, but also in Warren's case, where you have to, I mean, dictate what is and isn't okay for a president to do. Is it okay for the Saudi government to buy up a bunch of Trump uh, hotels, ha have that financially benefit Trump personally, and then have Trump be able to veto a bill to end the U.S. support of the Saudi-led war in Yemen? And can you, in the case of, of the, the Mueller report, allow a president to obstruct justice, something that no average American would get away with, but you're allowing the president to get away with it? Is that a, pres a precedent you want to set for future presidents? Oh, sure, you can obstruct justice. Trump obstructed justice, got away with it. I guess that means any future president now can clearly obstruct justice, and they would have an argument to say, well, Trump got away with it, so why can't I get away with it? Now, let me lay out the case that, the case that Robert Mueller laid out that Warren was referring to there, uh, this, so, this from The Intercept. Listen to Special Counsel Robert Mueller. With respect to whether the president can be found to have obstructed justice by exercising his powers under Article 2 of the Constitution, we concluded that Congress has the authority to prohibit a president's corrupt use of his authority in order to protect the integrity of the administration of justice, he writes, adding, the conclusion that Congress may apply the obstruction laws to the president's corrupt exercise of the powers of office accords with our constitutional system of checks and balances and the principle that no person is above the law. Got that? The special counsel, who listed 11 instances of potential obstruction of justice in his report and refused to exonerate the president, placed the decision firmly in your court. This is the impeachment referral you claimed you were waiting for. So, it's laid out in the report. Mueller is passing this off to Congress. He lays out the 11 instances where Trump uh, potentially obstructed justice, lays that out for Congress to then move forward to investigate that, uh, investigate that further if they want to and move forward on impeachment. Now, look, I understand everyone here understands that he would not be, uh, there's no way Trump would be convicted in the Senate. So impeachment would likely pass because Democrats have the numbers in the House. They don't have the numbers in the Senate. We all get that. So this really is about setting a precedent. What is and isn't allowed. You have to be principled on these issues. So in both the case that Rashida Tlaib lays out and the case that Warren lays out, it's about setting a precedent. What is and isn't acceptable for a president to do, despite the politics. So regardless of how you think this may help or hurt Trump, none of that matters. This is about this case here. And it's about setting a precedent for future presidents. It is not hard to say people who commit acts of terror in this country should not only be punished, but God forbid they should have any rights. I was so glad to see that the ladies of The View are back this week, back on their bullshit. So let's go through this uh, clip here on The View talking about voting rights. Now, really, when I say back on their bullshit, I'm really just talking about Abby Huntsman and Meghan McCain. But let's watch their, uh, their thoughts on having uh, allowing felons the right to vote if somebody commits a serious crime sexual assault murder they're going to be punished they may be in jail for 10 years 20 years 50 years their whole lives that's what happens when you commit a serious crime but i think the right to vote is inherent to our democracy yes even for terrible people you're writing an opposition ad against you by saying you think the Boston Marathon bomber should vote not after he pays his debt to society, but while he's in jail. You sure about that? I do believe. Look, <laughs> you know, this is what I believe. If you're going to go picking and choosing who should get to vote while, while you're in jail, I don't see that's a practical thing to do. You, you did this, and no, you didn't do that, so you get to vote. No, you can and you can't. Either you have to let everybody do it or nobody. But I think the idea of voting while you're in prison that is a very slippery slope. I mean, people are in there for all kinds of things. And you commit a crime, 
you shouldn't be able to develop well, it's, it's really a constitutional question because what the Constitution says under the 14th Amendment is that it's a state issue. It's a state-by-state -state issue. And in fact, I think Bernie's probably speaking to his experience because in Vermont, people in prison are allowed to vote. Uh -huh. And I think a lot of people don't know that. Um, and in about 48 states up until 2017. In Maine. In Maine. Maine. Uh -huh. And in, two th in uh, 48 states, most people, even after they got out of prison, were not allowed to vote. Right. And I will say, talking about prison reform and talking about low-level crimes like Alice Marie Johnson getting let out of prison, yeah. I believe a woman like that should have the right to vote for all intents and purposes. But for Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris to go on TV and say that the Boston terrorists deserves any rights in this country after killing three people and injuring 264 in 2013 I think is disgraceful RNC turn that into an ad it is not hard to say people who commit acts of terror in this country should not only be punished but God forbid they should have any rights mm -hmm. that any of us had or someone who commits a low-level crime like smoking pot or getting caught with a dime bag of pot and going to jail it is not hard to put lines between terrorists and people People commit low-level crimes. Actually, Megan, it is. And that's the problem. So let me break this down. Now, uh, Sonny Hostin, I think, had a good position here. Uh, uh, Joy Behar also uh, seems to understand the, the issue here. And that's, you can't pick and choose who gets to vote and who can't in prison. Because when you start that process, as Sonny Hostin alluded to, in 48 states, in the 48 states that don't allow you to vote from prison, those are also the same 48 states that have pushed, uh, uh, that have disenfranchised people even after they have served their time. So this is the problem here. This is why you make it a right, so that there isn't even the potential of, for example, uh, pushing out uh, black voters or pushing out voters that have uh, committed crimes in the past or disenfranchising people in various ways that they do again and again and again as we've seen it. They don't have the ability to do that if you have voting as a right. Now, let me... I have a lot of data here, uh, a lot of different perspectives to share here, because this is... I think this is an important issue to really educate people on, because this is something that people tend to be reactionary towards. You think, oh, yeah, terrorists shouldn't be allowed to vote. But if you actually understand the process and how the Republican Party have disenfranchised people and how they've used that kind of reactionary tone or the, that reactionary um, response to then further disenfranchise other people to vote. I mean, you have to understand the process and what is actually going on here. So first, let me just share, you, uh, share with you that other democracies do allow uh, people in prison to vote. So for example, Canada. So a 2002 Supreme Court of Canada judgment gave federal prisoners the right to vote on constitutional grounds, ruling five to four that voting is a fundamental right in a democracy. Now, let's look at the... Uh, so first of all, yeah, this is, this is not like a huge thing. This is just... should be obvious. Writing should be... Uh, or writing. <laughs> voting should be a right in democracies. Now, let me just share here the consequences of limiting the right to vote to anyone. So this from Splinter. For every convicted bomber who'd be granted the right to vote, there's 100,000 people who became felons due to non-violent drug offenses who'd be re-enfranchised. Also, relying on a justice system that systematically protects the powerful in society who only rarely answer for their own crimes to sort out who should vote in America is dangerous and stupid. Sanders is right. The right to vote shouldn't be taken away for bad behavior. And that includes... Uh, Jokar Zarnarev, uh, and considering this country's racist history of both administering justice and taking away the right to vote for bullshit reasons, no one should trust the state to be a fair arbiter of who gets to vote. And this speaks to Sonny Hostin's point and, and Joy Behar's point of you can't pick and choose because when you start that process, you just disenfranchise more and more and more and more people. Now, the ACLU is also on Bernie's side here. So they tweeted out fact. Laws that disenfranchise people in jails and prison disproportionately impact people of color. Denying the right to vote to an entire class of citizens undermines our democracy. And that's what I spoke to earlier. So this is this is part of the, the issue with, with why black voters are disenfranchised most in, in America, because they use these sorts of laws to disenfranchise more people. Now, to give you an example of... <laughs> so this, this video is... 
uh, speaks to that exact issue. So let me just uh, first share this tweet that shared the video. So this is from uh, Frederick Joseph. This video will likely become a meme, but it's deeper than that. The reaction of the black woman in the top right when Pete Buttigieg says felons shouldn't have the right to vote is vastly different than most of the white people around her. So let me share uh, that video. Should they be able to vote? While incarcerated? Yeah. No, I don't think so. Uh, I... Now, in case you missed that, let me uh, slow it down and zoom in to what exactly happened here. Yeah. So basically, one of the only black women they actually let into that that uh, debate, or one of the only black students there, understood how absurd it was that this entire crowd of Harvard students were clapping to disenfranchise people because she actually understands the issue. Now, let me uh, share with you the real life effect of what happens when you allow felons to vote. So here's one example. This is from uh, NBC News. Joseph Jackson was one of the millions of Americans inspired by Barack Obama's 2008 White House bid. A black man in the nation's whitest state, he coordinated voter registration drives and cast his first ever ballot for the candidate who would become the nation's first African-American president. And he did it all while incarcerated in a maximum security prison serving 19 years for manslaughter. That's because Jackson, 52, was convicted in Maine, one of just two states that allow felons to vote from behind bars. In the U.S., nearly all convicted felons are disenfranchised during their prison sentences and often barred from the ballot for years after release. Sometimes offenders lose the right to vote for life. For Jackson, getting involved in politics behind bars, petitioning lawmakers on prison reform, founding a chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, and casting the first ballot put him on a path for life after prison. Released in 2013, he earned a master's degree and works on behalf of inmates and their families with the Maine Prisoner Advocacy Coalition. So this is the potential benefit of allowing prisoners to vote. You include them in democracy. They still feel like they are part of society and they have room to rehabilitate themselves and have a life outside once they serve their time and leave prison. Now, what is the opposite effect? So, like, what's the, the actual negative effect of allowing prisoners to vote? Are they going to all get together and vote for, you know, the one candidate that wants to release them all from prison? Like, what is the actual real-world effect? So I saw this tweet from David Pakman, and I think it, it sheds light on that. The entire voting while in prison, quote-unquote, controversy, is laughable. If your fear is seriously that if prisoners get to vote, they might have enough numbers to vote for someone that's that'll uh, let them out of prison, then your reaction should be, we have way too many prisoners. Exactly. So if, I mean, there is no worry here. Allowing prisoners to vote, what is the negative consequence? And and the idea that, what well, oh, I was going to rob that bank, but you know what? I'm going to lose my right to vote, so I'm not going to rob that bank now. I mean, people have this incredibly cartoonish view of, of the world and of people and, and why people do bad things. Oftentimes, it's because they are born into a shitty life. They're born into a family that maybe they have abusive parents. Maybe they don't have much opportunity and they get into a life of crime. And oftentimes, it's not necessarily their fault that they ended up where they are. But once they are there and able to rehabilitate themselves, learn more about the process, maybe voting piques their interest in something, that's how you change, uh, that's how you improve these people who have, uh, who one point in their life were down an incredibly dangerous and destructive path. Now also, when you focus too much on punishment, like the US system does, has it improved things? It hasn't. Focusing on, puni uh, on punitive measures does not improve society. So this from Psychology Today. Why punishment doesn't reduce crime. Evidence demonstrates why punishment does not change criminal offending. So what is our return on investment? What have we achieved with all our nearly unilateral focus on punishment? There are several ways of looking at it, but perhaps the most direct is recidivism or reoffending. The overall recidivism rate is about 70% meaning 70% of offenders are re-arrested within five years of being released from the criminal justice system. It is important to note that recidivism is a conservative measure since it only counts those who have been caught. So, the focus on punitive measures instead of rehabilitation 
has not changed things. It's made things worse. So again, there has to be a real mind shift in terms of how you think about these issues, because the the way that it's been going has not worked. Now, I want to shift gears a little bit and just think about this politically. Politically speaking, how does this benefit Bernie Sanders? It doesn't. I mean, as Chris Cuomo laid out, this uh, is a very easy attack ad for uh, a conservative to, to make. But that goes to show you that Bernie's intention here, the reason he's running is not because he, he, he feels like he... It's not because of his ego. It's not because he wants to be the most popular guy. It's because he has actual principles. He has an actual fight that he is willing to uh, fight for and really deliver a message to help people. I mean, the idea that Bernie's supporting this policy because, what, it's going to make him more popular? No. I mean, a position like this that will be used to attack him shows you that he is a genuine person. So this tweet from Zephyr Ticho. Bernie Sanders is incredibly brave for opposing all felon disenfranchisement, including in prison. It is absolutely the right position to take. Felon disenfranchisement is a product of the Black Codes. And Black Codes refers to laws that were designed to uh, limit the freedom of African Americans. Also, two states, Vermont and Maine, and several uh, countries allow all to vote. I doubt it is popular. He doesn't need this position for votes. This is about principle and leadership and opening himself up to incredible attacks. Think of all the secondary effects, too. Children of imprisoned parents can talk about elections, replacing shame around voting. So... This is about setting a standard, making the right to vote a right in a democracy. This is not going to be politically uh, generous, or <laughs> this is not going to help Bernie in any way, politically, in terms of how the media takes it clearly. Uh, but what it does is it sets a standard. And at the same time, it shows you that Bernie Sanders is a genuine person who actually cares about helping people.